0: The next station is Kew Gardens. Find the gap between the train and the platform. I'm on my way to see Cécile. Cécile is a friend of mine. We met about 15 years ago. And a few years ago, Cécile mentioned that she had endometriosis. And I work in the charity sector and I'm used to hard-hitting stats, but I had never heard of endometriosis. And when Cécile told me that it affects one in ten women, I was pretty shocked. So I'm on my way to see Cecile and I want to record her story.
1: So I need to speak English anyhow.
0: Cecile, part one. Women.
1: Women development, women growth, however you want to call it, wasn't part of my education. So I didn't expect any of it. I didn't even expect cycles. I didn't know what they were. I kind of saw women around me doing things secretly, you know, stuffing things in their bags and whatnot. But I didn't really know what it was. So I didn't really know what to expect. So straight away, it was kind of like it's a mixed feelings. and I think it's the same for a lot of women. Um, it's kind of like, oh, you know, I'm I'm a woman now. And then, oh, but that's that's awful. It makes me feel sick and it makes me feel in pain and whatnot. So I think very quickly I experienced pain, but again, I didn't really know what to expect and it wasn't something that was talked about. So I didn't know it was something wrong per se. Also, I think um, doctors at the time avoided the subject a bit as well and it was normal <laughs> To have a difficult time every month. It's one of those things you have to go through to be a proper woman. And it wasn't a village or anything. Like, I make it sound like there was no education, but it literally wasn't anything like curriculum or even within, you know, where I grew up. There was nothing, not one piece of information. I probably was passed on a book about <laughs> sexuality at some point in my childhood, you know, something that was left on the table, sort of like, kind of have a look. Actually, we used to call that um, English. The English have arrived or something. That's what we used to call it in French. I remember that. It's funny. Um, no, I don't think it's something that we talked about. We talked about boys, but we didn't talk about We didn't talk about. Oh, look, at me. I look like a woman today. It was kind of like a little bit taboo. I think I don't know or uninteresting. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But um, but it was certainly. Uh, outside of the, the, the periods, it was certainly very embarrassing to talk about anything with regards to the symptoms that I had because that was definitely not talked about. you know whether it was just digestion problems or just feeling physically sick or just being tired all the time. You didn't we didn't
0: talk about that. I, not even to my best friend, I don't think I did. So when were you able to put a name to this condition?
1: Um, I was 30 when when they gave me a name for this which was um, good and bad. And and I think anyone receiving a, a diagnosis will experience this. I think it's like part of you is very happy to finally have something that's legit. And then part of you is devastated because you're like, oh, this is for life. I oh, know what am I going to do now? It's not something that even though, it, you know, it, it, I had lived with it for 18 years, you kind of know that it's something that's going to stay. But um, the expectations partly I think when you get a diagnosis is that oh that's fine it's going to be treated you know now that I know what it is but yeah 18 years is a very long time I think on average it takes about seven to eight years for women to be diagnosed with endometriosis and I think it's like literally a combination of what I said earlier which is primarily spotting the symptoms but also having the ability to discuss the symptoms with family and doctors and stuff like that to being able to get a diagnosis and diagnosis itself is very tricky because you actually have to be operated on to have a confirmed diagnosis. So you have to have keyhole surgery.
0: And before that, you had college and university. How did you cope with that?
1: Yeah, I did a lot of studying. I think at school it was kind of difficult, although I think it was accepted that you could miss school. Like it wasn't so much of a big deal. We didn't get fined or anything. Like it wasn't, you know, I could just miss school every now and again when I was too ill. Sometimes I would just be like, oh, I don't want to go to school. So I pretend I'm a little bit ill. But altogether, I think, yeah, maybe definitely every month. Yeah. And I remember like really, you know, embarrassing situations at school when I had to literally get out of class and run because I was feeling sick. But again, I didn't make the association with... A cycle or um, diet and stuff like that. It came much further down the line. But anyway, school was a bit difficult. But from the age of 16 to 23, um, I was actually on the pill. And that took the majority of the pain away. Although I had like some of the symptoms, but I got a massive break um, during that period where, um, you know, periods went so dramatic. So I could just get on with my life. And it was literally coincidence of me again, trying to be rebellious and be like, I want to be on the pill like everyone else. Why not? Not understanding that it actually had a correlation with with what I was going through. I don't think endometriosis was a thing in France at the time anyway. So even the, the, the gynecologist didn't, (laughs) I don't think she connected the two and two, but um, during that period it was, it was actually quite cool. And it was during my exams and it was during my university. So, um, but I still had l- like quite a lot of symptoms, um, on the periphery of that, which, um, when addressed and which I had to live with and couldn't speak to anyone. So during that period from 12 to the age of 30, I don't think I saw any specialist for anything that I was going through. Um, when I was younger, it's because, um, you know, it wasn't a thing at all. And then I had a bit of a break. And then after that, it still wasn't a thing. I didn't know what to do with it, I didn't know who to speak to, so I just got on with it because that's what I was told when I was younger, I just get on with it really.
0: And you mentioned some symptoms that were not managed by the pill. Do you want to tell me a bit more about the symptoms?
1: still a little bit embarrassing, but here you go, I think that um, a lot of people have heard about my symptoms now, like probably like hundreds of thousands, so it's easier, <laughs> it's becoming easier now. Um, I think mainly it was literally physically vomiting quite a, a lot, um, and I think um, it's both to do with the cycle, so every month definitely I was basic. but also like my digestis- um, digestive system is very temperamental, and it was very bad when I was young. So anything I ate literally um, couldn't digest, but didn't make the connection between wheat, for instance, and um, lactose. A lot of the time I didn't really like milk, so that was fine. But I didn't understand that one was causing the other. So I kept on eating bread and cheese, and it was like a wheat fest, as I call it, because you know, being French is what you do, and nobody says to you, oh, you're allergic to wheat. It wasn't a thing at the time either. And there's this weird connection between um, irritable bowel syndrome and endometriosis. And again, not really knowing whether or not a lot of women have IBS or they have endometriosis and et cetera. But so that was part of the, the symptoms, of, you know, vomiting, headaches, uh, being tired all the time. But you're a teenager, so everyone calls you lazy anyway. It's like you sleep all the time. What's wrong with you? A bit further in my life, um, sexual relations, very painful, but again, not something that you go and speak to people about, particularly not your partner or particularly not whoever. I had a lot of back pain. Like I couldn't do a lot of sports when I was young cause I have, um, back problems or I thought that would stop me from doing sports. And I realized that you can actually do sports, but like sciatic pain a little bit further, um, down the line, I started having sciatica quite a lot but I think it's the result of like spending too much time in bed because you're laying you're in pain so you lay down a lot and your body doesn't like that you're supposed to like get up and do things and what else pelvic pain I had a lot of cysts um later in life around my like um late 20s and 30s didn't know what they were either so that's like really sharp pain like stabbing type pain um acne I don't know how flushes, you name it. Bunch of symptoms, but they're very different from one woman to the next, I think. So my, the symptoms that I describe are very personal. Um, there's common symptoms like period pains and painful intercourse, irregular cycles and that sort of stuff. These are the, the main ones because a lot of women experience the same symptoms and then you have other things around that.
0: So you left France, you moved to the UK. Mm-hmm. Was your experience here different in terms of support or information or maybe being older and in another language, able to talk to more people?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think at the back of my mind, it was not a thing because when I was younger, it was basically insinuated that I was making it up. Because again, you're a lazy teenager and in painful periods, is
0: just normal, that's what women have to go through but when you're in your late 20s so you're no longer a teenager so you can't have that as an excuse no
1: that's right but i didn't know it was a thing i didn't really know there was a- i knew there was a problem because my life was really affected by it but i didn't feel legitimate in the symptoms i thought maybe it's true it's not there you know as i remember in my 20s sleeping a lot i was working a lot after university but i was spending most of my weekend sleeping My friends were like a bit weird, which, you know, it's debatable, but, um, but again, to me, it wasn't, it was just one of those things that I had to do, but I wouldn't have gone and see a specialist and say, you know, I sleep every weekend and I'm ill all the time. Like what's, what's that about? Because again, I had never been taken to a specialist. So in my mind, it was like, that's fine. It's just one of those things. You have poor health. Like you have to just get on with it. So I didn't think that there was a, an illness behind it. So I could have, you're right. I, in my twenties, I could have gone and reach out to people and say, you know, I've had this thing for like 10, 15 years. Um, and I didn't. Because also people were kind of like, well, so like, why are you, are you a bear? Like, why do you sleep all the time? Why are you sick are, are you, Do you actually have other things? Like, do, are you anorexic? Cause I'm also quite small physically and I couldn't digest anything. So everyone's like, you know, that's a bit weird. You sleep, you ill, blah, there's no name to it. I haven't experienced it, even though it's very common, which is very strange. Um, I only figured out much later that a few friends of mine had it, but because again, they didn't, I don't think they felt comfortable talking about their symptoms either. And you don't sit down with your friends and like, oh, you know, I vomit all the time. How you doing? You don't talk about that. Or, you know, sex is very painful. It's quite embarrassing. It doesn't come up in conversations. <laughs> <laughs> Even for French people.
0: <laughs> nah, I talk about it all the time. Perhaps we'll talk about sex in another episode. But you mentioned you were working a lot. Mm. How did the symptoms affect your working life?
1: So it didn't. And I think it's me mex- making extra efforts to not show that I was in pain, to keep it together, if you like. And then at the weekend, just, I would just crash completely. Like I would just sleep through. So my work wasn't really affected. By it per se. It only really turned really sour at the age of thirty because I started having cysts, and when they burst, which they did, you literally cannot walk um, for a couple of weeks. And it's not I mean, there's a real danger behind it where you know you can get on with your life or whatnot, but that really stopped me physically from doing anything. So I was like, I remember when I was diagnosed, I was like in bed with my laptop on my. Belly, getting on with my stuff and still then it didn't stop me from working i was like i must have been mad or something I'm still a bit mad but <laughs> it was so important to me work was really important to me so that was the priority always like i would prioritize work over social interactions and stuff like i was really driven and um, that's one thing i could control i suppose
0: but do you think because of all these years where you were sleeping a lot and being seen as a lazy teenager <laughs> there was something in you like pushing you to work even harder basically be a work addict it,
1: it'd be a very good conclusion based on what i've just said absolutely i think i, I was a little bit lazy though as a teenager i want like it's it's you know a normal teenager is a little bit lazy that's what we do we you know we just make a mess of everything we sleep all the time we eat loads of food Um, so it was a bit like that too. But yeah, I think part of me wanted to succeed. I think London gave me the platform to succeed because, you know, we, we, you know, we had access to a lot of things that we wouldn't have access to otherwise. And I just wanted to do as much as I could. Um, everything was exciting. Everything was fast. Uh, everything was there for me to grab. So I grabbed it. Well, I had a lot of proof to myself for sure. Like we study a lot and we bombs for years and then all of a sudden you're kind of like oh you know shit just got real i need to pay my rent i have nobody helping me i need to go and get that so part of me wanted to succeed personally but part of me knew full well that if i wanted to stay in london also there's a huge financial burden which actually affects us sufferers also a lot because we have this pressure of like looking after ourselves and stuff like that but i didn't realize at the time but yeah i think it's a combination of things. But I think the assumption that you're making is probably correct.
0: You've mentioned your diagnosis a few times. Yeah. How did it happen?
1: So I was literally on the course, a management course, and I'm sitting down at the table and all of a sudden I feel like I'm being stabbed. So like, I don't think, I don't know if I screamed or not, but I definitely started crying. And it's like adults at this stage, you know, managers being trained. And it was just horrific. I went straight into AE and they found liquid in my pelvic area, uh, which, and they deducted that I had had cysts that had um, ruptured. And then they mentioned this word, endometriosis. And I was like, what is that? It's such a long word as well. Like, I was like, what are you talking about? I'm a French person. That's not going to work. We need to find something better. But I said to me, you know, we think that you probably have um, endometriosis. And I was like, okay, sure. I didn't really think much of it. And then they offered that I have, or rather I had private health insurance at the time, so they accelerated the thing and then they um, scheduled me for a laparoscopy, which is a keyhole surgery that is used for diagnosis and also used at the same time for clearing out any cysts or affected um, cells. Um, Yeah, so that's how it happened.
0: But in a way, you were lucky to have a private insurance. Do you know how long it takes when you don't have a private insurance?
1: Um, I don't know. I think that, um, to be fair, the, the nurses at the time when I was at the hospital, the f- when the first or well, cyst burst and I, it was really painful, they were kind of worried about if they say that the, the ovary twists during that process, if you have cysts and stuff, they're worried that you may lose the ovary. That's why they always kind of like if you have a sharp pain, but you also have vomiting, you need to go to A&E straight away. So I think they, they would have addressed that really quickly because that's considered emergency. In terms of the diagnosis itself, I think it could have taken a long time. I think and I read forums and testimonials and feedback from women and they're always queuing to get to a point where they can get operated on. My experience was different because I had um, private health insurance. so Everything was accelerated and in a way it's probably not very good because the first year I had three laparoscopies. Is that common? No, I don't think it is. But I think it's because it came back with fury and to the point where even after two, three months, the pain was back and it was just horrific. So then they would schedule me for another. But on the NHS, I think it would have waited a few months. In private, they make you go straight away. And so um, so the first year was um, something else. I don't really know how to describe it. It was just like the ground was it's like quicksand type thing. I was going from one surgery to one treatment to another surgery to another treatment. And it takes, you know, I I remember the first, I think the first surgery after five days, I was like, woohoo, give me my laptop. I'm ready. Like insane. Again, like not really understanding the implication of the condition and what I was going through. I was kind of like, I mean, you have different, Phases. I think I was like totally in denial. I was like, yeah, I don't know. I'll crash this thing. I'll buy it out. I don't know. I'll figure it out. Something, but refusing to accept that it was something that I had to really address. Refusing to change my lifestyle. I mean, I was on a coffee and cigarette diet at the time. Um, I didn't even think that I needed to make any changes whatsoever. As like the arrogance of the thing is like, sure, just carry on operating on me. I will carry on eating coffee and cigarettes, and I will be fine. So I didn't change anything. It was a year in hell where literally I was lucky that the company I worked for, lucky or, you know, deserving, I'm not sure, but I was quite successful in my job. So they trusted that, you know, if I had to spend a lot of time at home in bed with my laptop, then they would allow me to do that. So I kept my job and I continued working 10, 12 hours a day. I would go to the office when I'm feeling okay. I would stay at home when I'm not feeling okay. I mean, in a way, I think that, really avoided going into depression because the the level of pain is intense. And when you work, well, me personally, I couldn't take painkillers because painkillers, they make you feel a little bit like you're out of it, if that makes sense. So I was kind of like, no, I'm just going to work instead. But also it makes you survive. It makes you exist because otherwise you, you become completely invisible and inexistent if you're stuck at home and you don't you're not doing anything you're completely out of the system and you know this is London people don't care they come and see you once twice and then after after that they're like well I have other things to do whatnot so that kept me going in terms of like at least mental health and sustain you know something that was positive which was work and arguably positive um. So yeah, and, and I still didn't get it. I thought well, that's fine. That's how I'm going to live my life. I'm going to work with my laptop from bed. And it'll be fine. But during that time,
0: how many times did you go to hospital? I don't know. I mean, quite a lot. Quite a
1: lot. I think my body was crying out for help. I didn't get it at the time. They were probably like, please stop. What are you doing? Are you mad? But me, I was like, no, I'll carry on. That's fine. So my body was probably producing even more cysts just to like ground me a bit, if that makes sense. So I think in these cases, you're meant to go to A&E. When the pain is super sharp and you're vomiting and whatnot, which I was regularly, then I needed to go to A&E. And these trips are so horrific. It's like middle of the night, you're on your own at the hospital. The majority of the time, doctors don't have the capacity or the training to being able to be sympathetic or, you know, remotely caring for what you're going through so it's pretty hardcore and i did that for yeah for a year and i carried on i mean this i think altogether the worst years was about i think it was about four years altogether it was like just bizarre period of my life